Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and we appreciate you joining us today on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio, a nationally known gerontologist. Carol served as the chairman of the board for the National Council on Aging and still serves on that board. She's executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and does a lot of speaking around the country on issues involving aging and seniors and care and caregiving. Good to see you. Nice to be with you. Now, we've got an amazing guest coming up who's going to tell us a story about what she went through as a caregiver, Kay Marshall-Strom, how to stay healthy when your loved one is sick. It was a story uh, you're going to hear soon of survival. Well, and and a lot of caregivers go through difficult situations and if you're a caregiver that's facing really tough times i think that um, Kay has a, a story that you'll be interested in and you'll hear that in just a few minutes i want to start out with an amazing story that both of us read about nora efren planning the details of her own funeral well, you know, if and you, she's an incredible writer. Was if, if you don't know who Nora Ephraim was, if you know the movie um, When Harry Met Sally, uh, or Sleepless in Seattle, the you know she was a comedic writer. Uh, she came from an entertainment family uh, and was well loved in New York where she lived. But uh, I guess what was a surprise, but then it wasn't a surprise to the people who knew her, is that she left meticulous notes about her funeral and even rented out Lincoln Center. Uh, to hold the funeral, which not all of us can do, but you know, her work. You don't have to be a celebrity to to plan a good funeral or to plan your own funeral. And we have a recent example of that in the late Senator John McCain. Well, that's it. I think that's a perfect analogy uh, for all. There are four different events, different speakers at the events. It was it was well choreographed. He picked the music. He picked all of the music, and I think that you know. Um, Having also planned a couple of funerals recently for some of yeah, my, my own relatives, um, that knowing what a person would like uh, is, is such a blessing and such a relief uh, to family members that if all of us could take a page, I mean, how nice to, to get the funeral you would want if you were around, but to also be thinking, have a, take the time to think about your family and your friends, what would reflect you and what would help them um, in a difficult time? And so the three lessons that we might take away from what Nora Ephraim or John McCain did um, is, is being decisive with what you want. So don't let anybody guess, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? Uh, is it a funeral? Is it a, a celebration of life? My great aunt had a celebration of life, not a funeral. Is it religious? Um, and then how do you want people to recognize you at your death. Now, didn't your aunt have the celebration of life she, while she was uh, living? While she was living, she said, I don't want a funeral. I want a celebration of life now. So I want to be there. I want to cool. see all the relatives and talk to all the relatives and hear what they have to say. And that's exactly what she did. Uh, and she had that opportunity a year before she passed to, to have that celebration, which was very nice. Um, you know, the second thing from Nora Ephraim is uh, 
prepaying. She paid for Lincoln Center. You know, you can prepay your funeral costs, and that way they don't keep going up and going up uh, and become a burden on the family. Uh, funerals cost like eight to ten to twenty thousand dollars. It's not, it depends on which uh, casket you decide to pick out. You can. Uh, spend a lot of money um, and then don't be afraid to get down into the details who do you want to speak uh, are there readings that you love like John McCain was there music he played Danny Boy um, you know if you want Amazing Grace on the bagpipes do you know any bagpipe players uh, but what are the symbols that had meaning for you so you know I think that's really helpful for for us to use both Nora Ephraim and John McCain as an example for, you know, you don't have to have a terminal illness like both of them had to think about, you know, how would you like to have your funeral and how do you take those, all those details, because it's a lot of details so that they're not difficult for your family or friends. We're all going to need a funeral or some goodbye. Well, as someone says, you're not going to get out of this world alive. Correct. (laughs) My friend Gary, who died recently, wanted an all-green funeral. And it turns out there's a cemetery in this community where uh, they don't put in those cement uh, barriers down in a grave. He was buried in a uh, tiny little wooden casket. Uh, He was not embalmed, just into the earth from dust to dust. Uh, And it was uh, an amazing example of how you could plan your own farewell and keep it environmentally sound. Well, and that's... Because um, those chemicals are not good for the earth. Well, they are not good for the earth, and um, there's a lot of earth. That it takes a lot of space to maintain cemeteries, et cetera, and so maybe that if, if green is your thing, you can even have a green funeral. I like that. Now, as we take a look at what else is going on in the world, we'll let Carol get a glass of water. You okay? I, I'm, water? All, I'm all right. And, and this is... Uh, what to do while you're still alive. alive. So we talked about the funeral. Five life lessons. And so, um, you know, you you don't have to, to have a, an end-of-life illness to plan a funeral, but you also don't have to have an end-of-a-life-ending uh, illness um, to think about how do you want to live. And so this came from Next Avenue for some folks that work in hospice, work in palliative care, work with the terminally ill, and, and they find that... Um, This is something that people who are facing end of life have in common, but wouldn't it be nice if we practiced it now? And so, uh, you know, one of the things is adjusting our priorities. So many of us, we get caught up in the day-to-day, and this is even true for caregiving. We get caught up in the caregiving, um, so much so that we don't raise our heads and look around um, and and think about our other family members. You know, who are we losing touch with we don't want to lose touch with? Uh, while we're in a caregiving situation, uh, is it the is it the work or the people that matter to us? Uh, making time for other people, that may cost money. It may be you've got to do a trade. I think you know when I'm thinking about our guest, she's probably got some hints for us. Um, and and then the the last thing I think that that came out of this is having meaningful conversations. Uh, when you get the opportunity, are you, you know your loved ones know that you love them, but have you really told them that? Uh, taking that time to have that conversation uh, in case something ever happened or just to let them know? Because if you think about, think about a time that somebody you know, said they loved you or told you something really significant, you probably remember that moment in your life, and wouldn't you like to have that moment with someone in your own life? Versus, uh, I know more people than I really care to recount uh, who have said, I wish I'd only made amends, or I wish I'd only 
whatever. Well, that's right. And and so... And, and once they're gone, it's too late. So forgiving people along the way, thanking people along the way, saying I love you along the way, making that a part of your regular life, even if you're facing tough caregiving times, make time for that. Let me thank our listeners for joining us at 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Uh, you're listening to a program that comes to you every week, and we're glad you join us at 6 p.m. Sunday afternoons. You can also get podcasts of all of our shows, and they are available to you at absolutely no cost. And we are also uh, available on iTunes at no cost and on whatever that service is on Android. I can never remember yeah, what it is. Yeah, if you just look at I ca- should write that Caregiver down. SOS on Air podcast, you will find us. Perfect. So we've done five life lessons. Uh, this is one that is... Here's uh, life lesson number six. Yeah, and this one has been written over and over and over again. My friend Sidney Wolf, who ran the health research group in Washington for decades, wrote a book on the worst place to be when you're sick is in a hospital. And, and you've got something on hospitals may be bad for your health. Well, this is from our friend Paula Spann, who works for the, writes for the New York Times in the New Old Age. Um, and she was writing about how dangerous hospital stays are after you get out of the hospital. Um, And what happens, and if you're a caregiver, you may have seen this and just know it's not unusual for a person to come out of the hospital and have decompensated, have gone downhill just from the hospital stay. So let's think about what happens in a hospital. Um, We get, the person gets woken up 20 times a night to do labs. Uh, They may not like the food. They may not uh, get um, a chance to eat the food because they missed it uh, or they can't. There was somebody that had dementia that I knew that actually the nurses set the food down and she didn't know how to eat. And they just uh, left and the, the family, food. and they would leave the fa- the food there, wow. and the family ha- would have to come in uh, and and feed her. And then all that inactivity is so dangerous. So what happens as a result of being in the hospital can be weight loss, um, you know, some mild delirium, uh, muscle loss, not being able to walk. Uh, you know, I've had relatives that came out of the hospital and they couldn't walk. And so going to the hospital is very dangerous. You've got a higher risk of falls for up to 10 weeks after a hospital stay. Um, and so I guess the bottom line on this is hospitals are trying to change. They recognize this. You just said people have been talking about this for a long time. Uh, children's hospitals see themselves as a place of healing for children. How many adult hospitals or adult floors of a hospital have that same healing feeling? So what could they do to make it more conducive? Letting older people wear their own clothes so that they can get up, even if that means dragging that pole. I've been in a hospital. I drag the pole all over the floor. It's not that hard. Um, Much better to get up when you need to. Uh, to Making sure that they get the meals. My my, um, dad stayed in a hospital recently and they had wonderful food and he had a menu every night when he came home he all he could think about was well i was in the hospital (laughs) i had this menu and i could choose between all these different meals what a real plus he missed the meals so somebody got that part right uh and then you know making sure that they're only taking the labs you know there are some hospitals that say 
you know, we should we should never wake up a sleeping patient because a sleeping patient is a patient who's probably getting, you know, well, and especially at night when they're supposed to be sleeping or when they normally sleep. Um, uh, you know, another hospital, same dad, would poke him every three hours to check for diabetes. He didn't have diabetes. His blood sugar was fine, but they kept taking his blood sugar, and we were just having to beat the nurses up to get him away from him. Uh, and so which labs are necessary? So until the hospital decide to do all of those things it may be up to the family um, the New York Times points out it shouldn't be up to the family well you got to be assertive well you have to be assertive and just know that it would be better for you to help feed your loved sure. one to help get your loved one up and walking put their clothes on them and say I'm putting you know dad's gonna wear his clothes so he can be more comfortable walking around uh, and just know that you're gonna have to take care of them if the hospital is letting them decompensate Got about a minute left. Tell me about what's coming up on Teleconnection, which is a wonderful program from WellMed Charitable Foundation's Caregiver SOS. So if you go to caregiversos.org and you'll see our teleconnections, which are telephone calls with experts, we have um, a former guest, Dr. Sarah Dirks, who is a geriatric dentist. I've had her on. She's fabulous. She's going to talk about your your mouth health and how that affects your body and what you need to do if you have an older, frail loved one. We don't think about their teeth enough. This is a huge gap. So I invite you on the 18th of September, if you can listen to the teleconnection session. If not, we record them. Listen to it anytime. But look for Dr. Sarah Dirks and Mouth Health for your loved one. She's a neat lady. I like her a lot. So there you are. Up next, we're going to be talking with a woman who knows a whole lot about how caregiving can spin downhill based on the behavior of the care recipient. We talked to Kay Marshall Strom coming up here on Caregiver SOS on air with me, Ron Aaron, and Carol Zerniel. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thank you so much for staying with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we are delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline a woman who has written a whole lot of books, including one uh, that is of particular interest to this show. And before I introduce Kay Marshall-Strom, the topic is Caregiver's Survival Guide, How to Stay Healthy When Your Loved One is Sick. And in your family, Carol, you faced a lot of these challenges for people who are caring... I'm talking to Carol Zernio real quick, and then oh, we're going to come to you. That's okay. In, in, in your life, you know what it's like to keep yourself healthy, trying to care for someone who isn't healthy. Well, I think that that's the challenge for anyone who's caregiving, um, is trying to stay healthy. And so it's nice to know that Kay has written a book 
um, to help us walk through that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times we caregivers sort of give away the farm. We give away our own health to take care of somebody else. So welcome, Kay, to Caregiver SOS on Air. And let me introduce you for our listeners. Uh, you, in fact, in your bio say, Kay Marshall Strom, who am I? And then you have a list of things you are. I'm a beach walker, a gardener, an off-key singer. You and I share that. I'm a wife, a mother, a sister, a daughter, and a friend. But most people know me as a writer and a speaker. And we really appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, tell us how you got to the point of wondering about how to stay healthy when your loved one is sick. You have personal experience with that. That's right. I was a caregiver, and um, I wanted to know how to stay healthy. I looked and looked for, for books that might help me and give me some guidance, and I couldn't find anything. I found a lot of books about how to take care of the, the person who was ill, but I didn't find anything about how to take care of me. Now, in so your that's own, why I decided. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, in your own case, you were caring for your husband? That's right. T- tell us about that and, and how you face that as a caregiver. Well, my, my husband, uh, we didn't have any idea what was happening. He just seemed like he was uh, making a lot of silly mistakes, and uh, he kept saying, it's not me, it's you. You just don't realize it. And I thought, well, maybe he's right. But um, as things got worse and worse, he finally was diagnosed with a condition called um, chorea acanthocytosis, which is nobody's ever heard of. It's very rare. And what was happening was his brain was being destroyed one part at a time. By what? uh, By whatever was what this disease was was causing it you know i don't know exactly what again it's so rare he was diagnosed at ucla medical center and they and they had never heard of the, the problem before and They'd say, never seen a case. say the name of the disease again chorea acanthocytosis um we're looking at each other going nope never we've never heard of, heard of it no <laughs> Um, my poor husband, he would tell people he had Koreans can't have psychosis, so it was close. <laughs> but well, um, how, did, how did you finally decide uh, you're at the point where he's making silly mistakes, it's not him, it's you? How did you finally decide, you know, we need to get you diagnosed? Well, I wanted to get him diagnosed early on, and I took him from doctor to doctor, and they said, you know, he, is, he has some sort of a psychosis, or he needs to be in a mental hospital, or this or that. But um, he had all kinds of, of odd uh, diagnoses. And then a doctor moved into town, a new neurologist, and I took him to him, and he said, I know what this is, and had him tested and came back with a diagnosis that happened to coincide with our house burning. So our house, had, we had been on a vacation, our house burned to the ground, and we came back with the diagnosis that he was very in very bad shape and he would get worse and worse maybe live as long as 20 years and but just be continually worse and you were the sole provider of his care you know i was i didn't have relatives close by and the ones i did have it was so hard to see what was happening to him they didn't want to help and even our church where we were very active just sort of turned away and um, I think it was too hard for people to see what was happening, and I was left alone. Yeah. 
did he did he have unusual behaviors or behaviors that people were uncomfortable around or was it yes. that he was just so not himself it was it was the former and the thing was it happened so slowly they told me that he had probably started having symptoms 20 years before and it was kind of like the frog in the boiling water and the you just get used to it get used to it and one day there was a couple an older couple a very aristocratic sort of people that had stopped by and i we were visiting with them in the living room and larry went and curled up in the corner rolled up and went to sleep and i didn't even look twice at it later i thought if anybody else had done that i would have thought what in the world is going on but i'd gotten so used to larry's odd behavior that I didn't even notice it. But that's when I thought, something has got to be done. There's really something wrong. What other odd behaviors did you see? He would, um, he ate in a funny way. He would keep sticking his tongue out and spilling his food down the front of him. He um, had odd movements. He, uh, he insisted on driving, but he would speed up when the light was red and stop when the light was green. It was just, um, he, he, he would see, he would run out in the middle of the street, and I'd say, what are you doing, Larry? And he said, I thought I saw a penny. I wanted to pick it up. He just, the first thing he lost was the sense of a cause and effect, and it put me at danger, it put him at danger, and uh, it was a terrible situation. He had to be watched all the time. Well, you said um, the doc- the doctor said he could live 20 years like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, how long did your husband live with this disease? About 10, about 10 more years. At this point, he had had the disease for, um, I'm, it is a congenital thing. He was born with the disease, and they said if he'd had a, a blood test, they would have been able to tell if they had even known about the disease. But it's something that is caused by intermarriage in the family. And he was a full-blooded Swede whose parents and grandparents had come and lived in the same area as people from that area. And so they said he probably, his, somebody along the line was first cousins or something. Ah. Um, so it's a very rare, very rare disease. Now, well, st- stay with me just a minute. I want to remind folks who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking with Kay Marshall Strom, talking about her book, How to Stay Healthy When Your Loved One Is Sick. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. And Carol, you were about to. Well, I was just wondering if is there any treatment for this particular disease, or even if you had known about it, would there have been anything anyone could have done? No. No, it's, it's very similar to Huntington's disease, except, thank God, it is a recessive gene and not a dominant gene. So our children probably carry the gene, but they don't have the disease. So have you had them tested? Oh, yes, yes. And nothing, nothing would ever show up unless they were to marry someone who also had the recessive gene, which is very, very um, unlikely. Right. Well, um, so your husband has a disease. It's very unusual. For 10 years, you're taking care of someone with very difficult behaviors and a deteriorating condition. When did you sleep? Well, that was a very hard thing because 
um, I was supporting us and rebuilding the house um, and supporting us and supporting two children in college with my writing. That's why I have so many books out. <laughs> it was a necessity. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing a necessity. Yeah, definitely. Nothing yeah. like having to make a living to be a prolific writer. Yeah, but, but Larry would come out in the middle of the night and break my computer and break the, the uh, keyboard and so forth and just do things that didn't make any sense like that. But um, Was he aware uh, of it? I don't know, and I asked the doctor that, and the doctor said there, he does not think the same way we think, and so there's no way of knowing what he's doing just to get attention and what he's doing. But he would threaten to kill me. I was afraid to take a shower or a bath because he'd stand outside uh, the, the shower with a knife in his hand and say, I'm going to kill you. And I thought, well, he probably will at some point. So it was really hard. Um, why didn't you have a, him? Why didn't you have him institutionalized? Uh, because nobody would take him. I went from place to place to place and begged them, and they would say, "Well." Finally, I said to one uh, place, "I said I'm not going to sue you. I'll sign anything you want. I just need to know why will nobody consider taking him?" And he said, "Well, because he's too young and he will live too long, and he's too dangerous." which actually does happen. That's not unusual. It used to happen all the time, even with folks with traditional, normal Alzheimer's that would have combative behavior. And, and facilities still don't like to take people that they think, you know, are, are harm to themselves or others, and, obviously. And very high maintenance. So did he become yeah. less dangerous in, his, oh, you no. know, in the later years or right up until no. the end? You were still afraid of him? Yes, he, even when he was in the, the, finally he spent the last two years in a nursing home. I agreed to take the administrator's writing and edit it for him if he would take Larry. That's and a trade-out. I like that. Yep. I believe exactly in trade-outs. Right. <laughs> yep. The, bar, the barter system. Right. trade-outs. <laughs> All right, hang on just a second. We'll come right back to you. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking with Kay Marshall Strom. And, We've done a lot of shows on a lot of stories. This is a first for us, living with someone who threatens to kill you and uh, probably could have. Carol Zerniel, our co-host. I'm Ron Aaron. Stick with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking uh, with Kay Marshall-Strom, an amazing story. She is a writer. She is a speaker, author of the book, A Caregiver's Survival Guide. I understand now what survival really means, having listened to this story. How to stay healthy when your loved one is sick. Uh, you're in a situation that very few people face, and I guess that's a good thing. Uh, did you end up saying to yourself, you know, this isn't fair. I'm out of here. He'll figure it out himself. No, no. Even when he was in the, the, finally, the last two years when he was in a nursing home, I went to see him every day. He, he had developed all kinds of strange things. He had a, a pair of shorts and a shirt that I'd gotten him in Hawaii, and he got in his mind that they had magic in them. And if there was any hole or seam ripped out, that all the magic would leak out. So he'd call me in the middle of the night, frantic for me to come and sew up the hole so all of his luck wasn't gone. You know, just things like that. It was so, he had been 
a, man, a business manager at Raytheon Corporation. And then here, just years later, this was his situation. So it was, it was very hard and very sad, but he needed, you know, I would like to believe that if something like that happened to me, there would be someone who would stay beside me. Well, it's nice to know that throughout all of those strange behaviors and even some of the fear that you were able to separate Larry, your husband, from this disease that was causing so many problems. But because it was such a long period of time and a horrific uh, condition, what did you, you wrote a book about staying healthy uh, when your loved one is sick. So what were the key lessons that you learned uh, besides possibly becoming an alcoholic, which I'm not saying you did, but it <laughs> no, probably crossed I your didn't. mind? <laughs> well, you know, uh, people would say to me, they'd say, if there's ever anything I can do, uh, let me know. So I wrote up a paper of what you could do. So people, when they said that, I gave them a sheet and said, here, check off what you want to do. Uh, very few of them did. But, what was on uh, that sheet? Oh, um, bring a meal. Uh, volunteer to sit and read to Larry for an hour so I could get some shopping done. Uh, come and read to him for half an hour so I could take a bath. Uh, those kinds of things. One day the mailman came to the door, and I was so frantic. I said, please come in and stay with my husband. Just talk to him for a few minutes because I want to take a shower. And he was rather perplexed, but he did it. And it was like a gift from God. So just things like that, not not even involved things. You ever see that same uh, mailman again? <laughs> yeah, that was the last I did. The route he changed. Was, <laughs> yeah. And he said, he, he told me later, he said, if I could have improved your life by just sitting with your husband, I'll do it again. And several other times he came and he said, I've, I'm a little bit ahead of my route. I'll stay with him if you want to take a bath. That's oh, cool. Well, that was very nice. So, yes, it was. So you made a list for yeah. friends uh, to hopefully pick something from. What else did you do? Well, and and how, how you first realize that something is really wrong and you need to to get some help, not only for your, your loved one, but for you. Um, changing roles, what, what uh, instead of Larry being in the roles he'd always been in, the the bill payer and all these things, I had to take everything over and our house had burned so all our, our records were gone. And then I found out that he had overdrawn every account we had, which I didn't know. Wow, so, so your house is burned down things, and no money. This is a great that's story. Right. <laughs> that's, and no house. But I called everybody and I said, here's our situation. How can I work this out with you? And every one of them worked with me. I also learned... That, You're talking about creditors, huh? Uh, yeah. And I also learned that a woman's voice does not get responses like a man's voice does. So finally, I got some guys to do my calling for me, and it made all the difference in the world. This, that's a, actually a very sad statement. <laughs> right. All, the is. ultimate in sexual. Not, yeah, not, not, I mean, I, I understand that. There of have course. been times, you know, when you, I have to go round up the dad, the husband, the uh, you know, the older son to, to ask the question because you, know, you can't get a straight answer. Yeah, they don't a take a woman seriously. Um, but, it's crazy. Yeah, that's a sad statement. Yeah, it is a sad statement. But, it, but, but it's but great it's that you true. realize that, that if you kind of get it done, you got you want a straight answer, you're going to have to go get somebody else to ask the question. Yeah. Well, yes, for instance, and talk about strange, unbelievable things. As our house was built, 
um, I had the the, uh, telephone company come and install a telephone line. And so they put it on the the builder's pole outside, and our phone was was sitting outside by this pole. And I called them and said, what? You didn't put the phone in the house. They said, well, you didn't say where you wanted it. I said, in the house. And they said, well, we'll come back out maybe, you know, when we can. It might be several weeks. It might be a month. I said, what? And I called them, and they said, don't even bother us anymore. So I finally had one of my friend's husband's call, and they were out there that day. That's the ultimate in passive-aggressive behavior. Yes, it is. Just crazy. And it is the ultimate in absolute frustration, I'll tell you. Well, when you when you meet with other caregivers, because every caregiver's situation is unique, and, and you certainly had multiple things going on, um, do... Do you see yourself in other people? Do you think they hear you when you say, take care of yourself? You need yes. to, you know, worry about you staying healthy? Yes. And there, and the usual response is some, some uh, degree of thank you. I, I can do this without feeling guilty then. Um, the, the emotions that, 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 that we would feel, that they would feel, would are are we need to understand what those are, and that they're all right. We're not bad people for um, being angry at times, for being afraid, for wanting to give up, um, for being a, a feeling guilty for what's going on. Those are things that are normal, and we. And it's not wrong. We just have to handle those things. All right, stay so things stay like with that. us a minute, Kay. I want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Kay Marshall Strom is our very special guest, a writer, a speaker, a caregiver's survival guide. Her book, How to Stay Healthy When Your Loved One is Sick. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerdiel. And Kay, I apologize for interrupting. No problem. Um, but it's just the idea that these crushing emotions happen and we all have those when we're caregivers and uh it's nothing to feel guilty about so just the freedom to experience those those roller coaster emotions uh, helps so many people well, I agree. It gives that permission. I, I was looking at some statistics today from some of the blogs on our website, and our friend Barry Jacobs had written a story, When You Don't Like the Person You're Caring For. And it was an unusually high number of people who checked out that particular blog. Well, we hear about that yeah. a lot. Yeah, you know, I, often I in, believe uh, it. In second marriages, uh, uh, depending on who the caregiver is, the spouse, uh, you know, the husband or the wife, they'll say, you know, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I signed up for. Well, I'll tell you, even if we don't say it, we feel it. It, says, it's, it, 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 it sounds bad to people who've never been there. People who've been there understand immediately. How did you deal then with the anger? Because you had to have, you're standing in the shower and Larry's there with a knife. Uh, man, I'd get angry. Yeah, and I did get angry. But, you know, then I would stop and think, it could be the other way around. It could be me that had this condition. What would I want somebody to do for me? Um, and I 
said that to myself over and over and over. And Larry had a lot of lot of things that he did that made no sense. He would get up in the middle of the night and take everything out of the freezer and put it on top of the freezer. So when I woke up in the morning, there was melted ice cream and defrosted meat and everything running down the sides. And I, it's just, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know what to do. Um, so I finally put a lock on his door and locked it in, in at night. And then I, I felt guilty about that. But I didn't know what to do. Uh, well, they're locked units. On, they're locked units in some of the uh, memory care institutions where someone has, uh, you know, severe dementia, and they get up and they wander, and who knows what they'll do. Well, Larry was not in a locked facility, but he was in the process of being moved to a locked facility, which would have meant, which would have meant, that he was a um, hundred long, busy miles away from where I would be. I wouldn't be able to go see him every day. And, um, the, but he died before he was moved. Now, as I listened to you, he didn't have dementia, did he? He, he knew who you were? Oh, yeah. He knew who I was. Oh, sort of. He called me Mommy a lot. And he would stomp his feet and say, I don't want to do that, Mommy. But that was as he was, as more parts of his brain were being destroyed. But he knew who I was. But he also blamed me in some way for what was happening because he always tried to hurt me. They would not let me come to the um, to the care facility alone. I had to have somebody with me because he was too dangerous if I was alone. I was hospitalized three times with, with concussions from him knocking me over and so forth. Wow. So it was hard. Well, um, would if looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently, uh, kind of looking at the whole 10 years? You know, I think I would have been more assertive in getting help. I couldn't afford to hire somebody. And at one point, one person who was a professional caregiver uh, said, well, I'll just come out and stay with him every week, once a week, so you can get out. That lasted one week, and she never came back. So I don't know what I would have done different. I, I, I still am glad. I'm glad that he and his family knew that I cared enough to care for him. I'm glad my children knew that. I'm glad my children know that if anything happened to them, I would care for them. So maybe I wouldn't do anything different. Was there, was there never a time where you thought, I'm just going to put a pillow over him and snuff him out? There were a lot of times I thought that. And one time in a class I was teaching, a doctor came up to me at the end and he said, I know that condition, and if you, when you get to where you can't stand it any longer, give me a, uh, give me a call and I'll go visit him. And yes. I started thinking about that. I said, well, go visit him? And yes. he said, your problem will be over. I kept his card for probably two months, and I looked at it so often that I said, I've got to get rid of this, and I destroyed the card. I burned the card. Well, it's an amazing story. It's, you know, so many caregivers go through these terrible, terrible ordeals that many of us wouldn't be able to deal with. But if folks want to, to get your book, a, a Caregiver Survival Guide, How to Stay Healthy When Your Loved One is Sick, where would they find your book? It is on my blog site, although my blog site is being repaired right now, so I don't know if it is, uh, k at kstrom.com. And uh, it can be ordered from me, 
or it can it's on Amazon, it's on uh, in bookstores and so forth. Well, we sure wish you luck. You win the award, by the way, for the worst one of the worst stories we've ever heard, and we've, we've been doing heard. this for years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I I'll tell you, I would not want to live through it again. But I'll tell you, there are people who come out and do such wonderful things. I went to a Christmas party, and I was talking, and I, I was just so desperate to talk to somebody that a woman came and stood kind of near me and said, Hi, how are you? That was the wrong thing to ask me. I started pouring out my story, and I purposely took a breath in the middle of a sentence rather than at the end so she wouldn't be able to say, well, goodbye. And I didn't know this woman, and she stood there and listened to me. And wow. a couple of years later, I saw her again, and she said, I just knew you needed to talk. I can't tell you how much that meant to me. That's pretty cool. Hey, we thank you so much for coming on and for sharing this incredible story. Kay Marshall-Strom, writer, speaker, author, and uh, thank you very much. Take care. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. I, I can't imagine. It, it, it's horrific. It's a horrific story, and, and that she came out still sounding like normal. Larry, Larry was her husband, and she loved him till the end. How wonderful was that? Till death do us part. Unbelievable. Take 10 is next. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. This is Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Thank you for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. We flip to Take 10, a program that follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs in which we kick around a topic for 10 minutes, thus Take 10, with Carol Zernial, our co-host, and Dr. Jamie Heisman, who joins us, who is a nationally known psychotherapist and expert in caregiving as well as addictions. And Dr. Jamie, nice to talk with you. Carol's going to set up this topic. All right. Wonderful. So, hi, Jamie. Um, today, we wanted to talk about, um, uh, we, we've done an interview with a caregiver who was afraid of the person that she was caring for. He was violent and threatening, and she could not find placement for him uh, because the facilities were afraid of him as well. So what, what do you do when you're afraid of your, your loved one? You know, Carol, this is a great topic because it happens way too often, and it's pretty much kept silent, like out of shame and stigma. Caregivers just don't want to talk about it. I think it's also a dirty secret in terms of skilled nursing and the way we actually work with residences for seniors of this type of aggressive behavior, which is not really well. So as a caregiver, I'm sure she's had to learn a lot of 
techniques, if you will, for stabilizing. But basically what we do as clinical social workers for crisis stabilization and kind of triage in some ways. But at the same time, she had to plan for, you know, him feeling assured, listened to, uh, in some ways have some measure of trust. Otherwise, we all know that the issue will be exacerbated and the aggression will pop out. Well, and and she mentioned that she felt like he blamed her for his getting this disease, this brain disease. You know, that's a, a incredible jump off point for us on this show, which we talk about often. You know, Miguel Ruiz, uh, who wrote the Four Agreements, which is a fabulous transformational group, uh, a book that everybody on the phone should get, uh, talked about the agreements that be impeccable with your word, don't assume, you know, and don't take things personal. And the fourth is do your best. When he said don't take things personal, she obviously has to, and we as caregivers have to be able to separate the actual condition, the issue, the actual aggressive health concern or whatever's creating the agitation or aggression from our loved one who is also there. So in not taking it personal, you know, we can actually separate our loved one, if we can, from the disease and act accordingly because it's going to trigger all the issues of our family of origin if we think that the person is talking directly to us. Well, she did not personalize it. And, and in fact, Carol commented to her that it's just amazing and so wonderful that uh, you're not taking any of these behaviors personally. So it was the disease, right. not the husband. So she would say... Absolutely. And she, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, she, she said she would always ask herself, what if it was me? What would I want to happen if this was me that had this behavior? You know, and I think what you want to happen is probably what clinical social workers do in their their life, if you will, their professional life, is that she needs to allow, obviously, her loved one and caregivers in a similar situation is to keep as much control of their life as possible. She needs to obviously reassure them and connect with them and bear witness and listen to them as opposed to reacting and becoming oppositional and, and scared. And she has to do so many sorts of, of actual practice skills that we do in terms of building that therapeutic bond with her loved one and being extraordinarily resourceful, like a quarterback of a team, and making sure that she has a support network all around her. Well, one thing she did that was just amazing, we mentioned it to you briefly off the air, uh, one day the postman came and uh, she begged him to come in and sit with her husband for three minutes so she could take a shower. She hadn't had a shower in, in quite a while, and he agreed to do that. And when she came back out of the shower, he said, you know, I can see this is really very difficult for you. I'm, I'm happy to come back uh, and, and sit and read to your husband while you take care of personal stuff. So if he ever got ahead on his route, he would say, you know, I'm ahead of my route today. Do you need a few minutes? And he, he did it several <laughs> times, she said. How resourceful. How wonderful. And obviously, you know, necessity is the mother of invention here. So we, we just had a conversation yesterday about the integration of behavioral health in our medical clinic. And somebody said, and I'm obviously a big caregiver proponent, get the caregiver to sign, get them part of the medical record, get them as an ally, whether they're biological or they're a family of choice. And one person said, look, my patient lives under a tree. I mean, I mean, under a tree, lays there, goes there every day, is homeless, and has nobody. And I said, you know what? Once you really bond with this person, I bet you they have somebody, a coordinator of a homeless shelter, somebody out there in the street that they'll actually bring into the, the health care process that can act as an ally. So we have to be very, just like her, creative in this process. Well, let me ask you a question. If a caregiver really has someone who's living in the home 
who they, she believes is a danger to themselves and others, including herself as the caregiver, what kind of options does a person have uh, in terms of immediate danger and maybe over the long term? Well, you know, this is a real tragedy in our society because any long-term care issues have been kind of preempted, if you will, by in the 80s of deinstitutionalization where we actually closed up any center that could on an ongoing basis help somebody with, with constant, consistent violence and aggression. Um, obviously, she needs to really connect with the uh, area agency on aging, number one, and, and you know that for sure. You could probably connect them locally easy enough. Um, but there, obviously, she's going to find places, if you will, or, or support groups or people that have gone through the same issue. Immediately, uh, she and hopefully caregivers around her, whether they're family or not, will make the physician and any licensed clinician aware so that if he is a danger to her or others, immediately they can actually Baker Act him. Because let's face it, when he's in an episodic violent state, uh, there's nothing or nobody can reason with them that have real strong practice skills, and even then we can. So having, you know, if you will, professionals on call to be able to do the Baker Act uh, and also be able to tell your local authorities a little bit about what's going on so they, too, are ready. All right, hang on just a minute. I want to come back to you in a moment and find out whether the Baker Act means making water boiled bagels or, or something else. <laughs> you listen to Caregiver right. SOS on Air's Take uh, 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking with Dr. Jamie Heisman. So what is the Baker Act? Well, unfortunately, you're right. That's a, a geographic-specific law in the state of Florida where if somebody's a danger to themselves or others, there's a 72-hour hold that any policeman, licensed social worker, psychologist, or physician can actually get somebody to a very safe uh, psychiatric hospital, if you will, or if it's a medical condition, they're on a one-to-one basis. And every 72 hours, uh, you can t- do the condition, do a biopsychosocial immediately, and see if that person is at all able to go outside and be discharged. We, have that, not, in, we have that in Texas. You do. So you can explain it to your uh, listeners in Texas. Well, it's the same thing. Same thing. It's the Baker Act. So, yeah, same idea. Oh, it's the Baker Act. Right. So, oh, I thought the Bakers were from Florida. Great. <laughs> so um, the good news is that you can you can call 911, let them know that your loved one is having um, a violent episode and have that person physically removed and held for up to 72 hours, like three days. Absolutely. And in that time, you you obviously can't take a respite. You have to make sure you have, if you will, an informal or formal network of of people around you, agencies around you that are supportive, that know of the situation. Obviously, staff securing a violent person is very difficult, even in the best of psychiatric hospitals. So if you don't have that support network in place and you don't have, you know, people that are ready to assist and help, um, danger can result. Now, she took to locking his door at night. I locked him in a bedroom. Mm, wow. Yeah, which you is. Know, that's a tough deal. Yeah. It is a tough deal, but she was afraid he'd kill her. Absolutely. You know, this is really, again, a, a huge societal need, again, for better uh, residential facilities for precisely this type of patient. We really have to go to our congressmen and, and really talk about elder care in a very authentic and real way. Because this particular person doesn't need to be locked into a place. Obviously, it's not going to help them. It certainly is a great strategy for her having nothing else. It's survival. But we do need, yeah, survival, exactly. But we do need uh, placements 
where this can be met in a much more therapeutic way. Carol, you get the last word. Well, I would just like to say that if you are a caregiver um, and you are in a situation where you do feel like you're unsafe, you, you do need to call 911. I would say do not hesitate if you feel that you're in danger. Um, and it may be that this happens over and over again. Uh, and we, we would be um, happy to work with you um, at Caregiver SOS uh, if you cannot find uh, assistance in your local area or want to work on this issue. Jamie, thank you. Carol, thank you. I'm Ron Aaron. This was Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.